Hello, welcome to the Innsmouth Wrap-Up here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Today we've got my pal Chris Lackey interviewing Robert M. Price about the sociological and literary origins of the shadow over Innsmouth. Robert is, of course, a professor of theology and scriptural studies at the Coleman Theological Seminary and an author of many great books on religion and myth as well as Lovecraft. He's the host of his own show, The Bible Geek, and one of the hosts of Point of Inquiry, links to which you can find in our show notes. After that, Chris and I get on the horn with one of our favorite guys, Donovan K. Lauks. Donovan is the creator and keeper of this show's main resource, hplovecraft.com, where you can find the most accurate versions of Lovecraft's work, as well as criticism and all sorts of great information. Donovan is also an expert on Lovecraftian architecture and geography. He's got some fascinating insights to share about Innsmouth and more, including facts about the case of Charles Dexter Ward, never heard publicly until the end of this program. Hmm. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get going here at hppodcraft.com. Has produced this record. Chris Lackey here, and I've got Lovecraftian scholar and guru Robert M. Price on the phone with me. Glad to have you back on the show, Bob. Good to be here. Before we get into talking about Innsmouth, I was wondering if you had any interesting projects going on right now. Well, uh, last week I sat down and wrote about five stories I owed to different uh, editors and the like. I just finished a Thongor story using Lynn Carter's character. It's called Vampires of Lemuria, and uh, you can tell it's real high-class literature. (laughs) uh, A couple of other uh, horror stories of different kinds. and uh, One I collaborated with the eight-year-old son of a friend of mine on one called I Am Legion, a tale of a Frankenstein monster. And uh, (laughs) really been enjoying that. Wow, sounds cool. Um, On the show, we've been talking about uh, the Shadow over Innsmouth, and uh, in my readings, I noticed that Ken Haidt, in his book *Tour to Lovecraft*, said that you had one of the best structural analysis of this story in your introduction to the Innsmouth cycle. And instead of us talking about what somebody else wrote about what you wrote about, I figured, why not go to the source? So can you tell me about it? I never had a chance to read it. Yeah, it suddenly dawned on me uh, from things I've read about religion and anthropology that uh, Lovecraft had uh, spontaneously recreated uh, the, uh, well, uh, an idea of a uh, cult uh, in the technical sense, not just meaning some sort of evil religion, but a particular type of religion, uh, that uh, matches very closely a lot of things that, that are really true about uh, such religions. And I don't think a lot of this work had even been done yet, but he certainly was a wide reader and had some idea of what went on in uh, in the world of uh, religion. And uh, it, it occurred to me that he had come very close. Well, he really had made an authentic-sounding Religion that conformed first to the uh, the uh, pattern of what Anthony Wallace calls revitalization movements, and second, he had uh, done a, a very compelling sketch of the importance of rites of passage, uh, which uh, Victor Turner, Mercia Eliade, uh, Arnold Van Gennep, and others have, have researched and, and talked about in all kinds of cultures. And the the thing with revitalization movements, which you can find throughout history and all over the world, is that they they arise when a a culture, a traditional culture, is challenged by an encroachment, usually of some foreign power or culture, some colonial power, or something like that, where mm-hmm. the uh, they may be persecuting the 
religion of the, the indigenous people, or they may simply have conquered them and thus cast doubt on the power of the traditional gods. I, I mean, all ancient people thought this. If, if we got our butt kicked by the Assyrians, doesn't that mean the Assyrian gods are more powerful than right. ours? Uh -huh, Maybe uh -huh. we ought to worship them. And uh, so the the old way, the old culture and religion are, are in big trouble. And often you'll have some people that decide, look, I, we're not going down without a fight. We've got to rescue and preserve the old ways. But in order to do this, they have to revise the old way uh, because they figure, well, obviously the invaders are doing something right because they certainly beat us. Right. Uh, can we turn their own guns against them? And so what you have is uh, a kind of a melding of old and new uh, because even though you're mutating the old, this is the only way you can, you can uh, see to, to save it. And uh, in that uh, introduction, one... Uh, example I've used because it's not so foreign seeming is what Judah Maccabee and his brethren did when uh, the Seleucid Empire of Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to stamp out Judaism. Mm -hmm. uh, to a great degree, they didn't even have to persecute, though they did that. Uh, but uh, Hellenism uh, sounded real good to a lot of Jews who converted to the worship of Dionysus and uh, went uh, to the gymnasium, the gymnasia, as they would have said, where right. you exercise naked, and this is abhorrent to traditional Judaism, uh -huh. and and a lot of things like that. They said, oh, why not? And uh, so uh, they, Judah and his brethren, uh, said, uh, no, 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 uh, we're not going to let Judaism just disintegrate like this. So they led a revolution for independence, which they attained for about a hundred year period, but. The result of Judaism, though monotheistic, was was heavily revised in terms of Hellenistic culture, even the institution of the rabbinate and, and the way they interpreted scripture was all derived from the Stoics and so forth. And, and this is the way it often happens, and sometimes the uh, departures in order to save the religion make it so different that the tribal or cultural elders say, look, this is just another heresy to hell with it, and you have a new religion that starts. Hmm. Well, now, what does this have to do with Lovecraft? Well, strangely, he has... Uh, the idea of, um, well, when you go over to uh, the Pacific Islands, uh, where the, you have the Deep Ones threatening to take over the Kanaka Islanders culture, right. and uh, then they make further inroads once uh, Obed Marsh contacts them. And uh, I go through all kinds of uh, detail about this, but the Order of Dagon it turns out to be a kind of revitalization movement to preserve as much as you can of the uh, New England Christianity while assimilating uh, the uh, the religion of the Deep Ones. And yeah. uh, then I go into the initiation thing, and the story is just filled with that. Like Zadok Allen talks about the three oaths of Dagon right. and, and so forth. And, the element of liminality and of people undergoing these transitions, hiding themselves away, usually for a short time, but that's why the people that haven't quite finished turning into fish frogs are behind closed doors. Who are they hiding from? And they control the town. Right. Well, it's like a ritual seclusion, and on and on it goes. And, of course, the very writing of the story is supposed to be the great rite of passage of the narrator. Uh -huh. And so I try to say, this really rings true with uh, the kind of religions he's talking about. It's amazing. Huh. 
Yeah, no, no, that's uh, something I haven't really uh, thought about before. Now, I mean, even Christianity, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it uh, kind of accepted by the Roman Empire when Constantine won a battle? Uh, yeah, he, it looks like, from what I read, that Constantine probably was raised a Christian, but uh, it certainly uh, wasn't—it uh, didn't have official legitimacy, and uh, the battle at the Milvian Bridge kind of enabled him to bring it out in the open and make right. Christianity a so-called uh, religio licita, a legally licit religion. He didn't make it the state religion, though. That was Theodosius a bit later. Yes. But— um, it was syncretism. Well, he was like the uh, the Pontifex Maximus of the cult of the Invincible Son, uh-huh. as well as being, uh, in his own estimation, the second coming of Christ. But Christianity was uh, the same sort of a thing. It was like uh, compromising with the old religions as it uh, took them over, and it had begun many things as a kind of revitalization movement responding to the Roman encroachment on Judaism. Uh-huh. So this really pops up all over the place, really. Wow. Lovecraft was inspired by a couple of other stories as well. Irving Cobb's Fish Heads mm-hmm. and uh, Robert Chambers' Harbor Master. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've read. Now, those stories primarily focus on a, um, uh, a single person being some kind of hybrid, not a whole culture or society. Is, is that correct? Yeah. It, in uh, in Fish Head, it's, it's very obvious because he's... They sort of hint at the fact that the character Fish had a local freak and pariah is uh, is uh, half African, half American Indian, and and with a general racism of the time like that, would be enough to make you a freak in, in their their awful estimation. Right. In the Harbor Master, there's some sort of a amphibian creature that, of course, must be the tip of the iceberg. It's like the, the Loch Ness monster. If there was one, there'd be a whole species of them, and uh, and so implicitly there would be some kind of deep one, like uh, uh, species or something in the Harbor Master. Though he doesn't really go into that. Uh-huh. Now, I've, have you heard of a story by Carl Capek? Uh, I think it's pronounced called War of the Newts. No. Well, this was pointed out to me by a listener um, who's named James Kirk. Not sure if that was his real name or what he just posted. (laughs) But this story is about a merchant sea captain who discovers this race of underwater people, kind of like, you know, fish people. It's more about how they are being exploited by people than in Shadowver Innsmouth, where they are the ones that are doing the exploiting. But there are some interesting parallels, like both feature merchant captains. They both deal with fear of submarine civilizations rising up and overthrowing our own. Uh, they both have human cults in, in the center of the story. In Innsmouth, they're on Devil Reef. In War of the Newts, they are in Devil Bay. But War with the Newts is a satire, and it really seems to point out a lot of racial prejudice and things like that that are in the United States. You know, for example, they accuse of some of these newts to have raped women, even though they don't physically have the anatomy to do anything <laughs> like that, and then they are lynched. War with the news really seems to focus on how humans can uh, be manipulative and take advantage of other peoples and things like that. Fascinating. I'd never heard of that. And you're right, neither author could have read the other's work. Yeah, it didn't come out in English until 38, and by then Lovecraft was was dead. And he didn't speak Czech, so, you know. But anyway... uh, Back to Innsmouth. Is there any other other points about Innsmouth or, or things you find particularly interesting? 
Well, just a couple of things that interest me slightly, like in Celepheus, or however the heck you pronounce it, and in the fungi from Yaga, there are little intimations that Lovecraft would go on to develop, uh, because uh, uh, Celepheus uh, takes place in a, a fishing town called Innsmouth, and uh, there is also in the fungi from Yaga this... Uh, this one uh, sonnet that uh, where the author sees he goes up onto a ridge and looks out at the ocean and he is startled to see sails out of Innsmouth because he thought it was a completely deserted town oh. and uh, this all somehow figures into the shadow over Innsmouth uh, that it's because of the latter that I titled the second Innsmouth collection I did this, the tales out of Innsmouth a bad pun uh-huh. uh, but uh, he had that rattling around in his head, I, I guess. I think he was the name Johannes Lay, uh, the, the, the civilization, the city of the deep ones down below Devil's Reef. That seems to be borrowed from Johannes uh, uh, Lahai, uh, some uh, lo- uh, location in uh, uh, Lord Dunsany. So yeah. it's funny you can see him connecting dots, though. And, and I think the the real subtext of the shadow over Innsmouth is also racist. It's not satire. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it sort of the a mirrors it in a way, because um, there, I, of course, when we talked about this a little on the show is that some people say the argument is that Lovecraft is uh, maybe being a little less racist because mm-hmm. the uh, Robert Olmsted uh, embraces his otherliness. But I think that that's a poor argument because um, at no point are the deep ones ever exonerated for whatever it is that you know all the the misdeeds that they've done. They're always made out to be these horrible, horrible things. And I think it's more of a racist warning to you know be, don't interbreed with these people because if you do, you'll become one of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, at the end, you think, that's why it's a horror story. Oh my God, he's yeah. gone over to their side, right? Because of uh, interracial mixing, as you said. Yeah, which is unfortunate because. Uh, uh, this is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. It's so it's so scary and interesting, and and uh, just really touches upon all the really cool stuff of, of Lovecraft that I really enjoy. But it has that really crappy racist undertone to it. Yeah, I, in a case like that, I just view it as uh, uh, well. I guess it's kind of ridiculous, uh, similar, but it's like rubble still uh, weaving straw into gold. It, it, ultimately, it's the genetic fallacy. Like Heidegger was a Nazi at some point. Does that mean you can't read his philosophy? I mean, it's right. not a philosophy of Nazism. No. I agree with you. I regret it. But uh, well, in another sense, you know, Lovecraft uh, was—he uh, was a racist too. But sometimes he—he he was just concerned that uh, cultures not degrade themselves by intermixing. Yeah. That if they had their integrity, they were fine. He just didn't like to have uh, the Islanders in good old Yankee uh, Rhode Island. I mean, we we don't buy that anymore either. But at yeah. least that's a little bit uh, shy of total racism. Well, Robert, I want to thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time and imparting uh, some of your great wisdom uh, onto us. Oh, the favor's done to me. I appreciate it. <laughs> 
Uh, we're here with Donovan Lauks, who is an expert in Lovecraft geography and also is the man behind hplovecraft.com, which we have used so much on the show. We use it like crazy. We love it. Basically, you can read all of Lovecraft's works there that are in the public domain. And, and you know, it's just been such a great resource for us. We're so glad to have you on the show, Donovan. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, how did you end up being the guy behind hplovecraft.com? Kind of a long history that's kind of uh, lost in the midst of time at this point. Years ago, I got on the alt-horror Cthulhu news group on Usenet via America Online. At the, at the time, you know, we didn't have the prevalence of ISPs like we do today. Right. So I, I got on there participated in the news group. I took over the fact for the news group from a fellow named Drew Smith and eventually switched to an actual ISP. Uh, uh, I think it was indirect.com, internetdirect.com, and discovered one weekend that I had some space available for making web pages. And so one weekend I learned HTML and started cranking out a Lovecraft page. And it just it kind of all came together over one weekend because I, I saw the internet kind of as a giant um, encyclopedia and mm-hmm. I needed to contribute my chapter to that encyclopedia and I you know had been a Lovecraft aficionado like like most of us since since high school I took my books and kind of distilled a bunch of information together and made a website and then um, in let's see I think it was 1998 somehow I miraculously acquired the domain hplovecraft.com you know how difficult it is to find a domain name these days yeah absolutely and that one was available so I snagged it the whole thing just started one weekend. I just threw about a dozen pages together that were summaries of printed matter, and, and it went from there. And now it's, you know, the number of pages now, um, I think I've got 600 individual pages on the site, and I get over 2,500 unique visitors every day. Well, I have to say, your goal of uh, contributing to the, the Internet and the collection of knowledge on the Internet has been met because it's, I, I mean, any of these stories that would have been difficult for me to find maybe in a collection somewhere if I didn't have the money to go buy the book or I couldn't get it from the library. I mean, it's been great to be able to pull the, you know, just pull the stories up, give them a read. It's made us possible to do the show because nobody has to buy anything to listen. You know, if they want to they want to read along and they want to get access to this kind of literature, they can just do it. And that that's because of something that you put up there on that one weekend. So that's really great. Thanks so much. So thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for thanking me. <laughs> and just so you know, the, the text themselves didn't actually appear on the site until less than two years ago. I think it was uh, around Lovecraft's birthday in 2009 that the, the texts went up. Prior to that, they were spread around on a variety of different sites, mm-hmm. but yes. the texts are all corrupt. Uh, you know, they've been taken from, you know, uncorrected versions and so on. And so uh, S.T. Joshi and David E. Schultz have provided me with these with these texts. And then I've I've uh, performed some electronic wizardry to ch- compare <laughs> multiple versions of the stories in order to get the most accurate version. So the, the versions that are on the site are actually the most accurate versions available, even in print. But my main goal wasn't so much to allow to provide them so that people could read them. Because uh, you know, reading on screen can be difficult. Although in this day and age, with ebook readers, people are doing that more. Mm-hmm. But the main benefit is the fact that they can be searched. Yeah. Um, it's, it's great. I've got a search page where you can just pick the electronic text and search through those, or you can search through the whole site. And of course, when the the page for a given story is up, you can just search on that page for the text you're looking for. And I find that tremendously useful. I've used that on many occasions. I just imagine that the way the way you corrected the text was just 
you did a find and replace. Anytime you saw the word shown, you changed it to shoon, and then we knew. <laughs> ST's pretty much done that already. Uh, <laughs> he, he went to the, uh, the original text uh, when available at places like the John Hay Library at Brown University and has corrected them painstakingly by looking at them, you know, looking at the manuscripts. Uh, but there's still some, you know, a few errors in there. You know, humans aren't perfect. And, and one of the things that uh, I did was I took multiple copies of the text, multiple electronic copies, and effectively did a comparison to show the differences between them and then manually examine just the differences to correct those to see which ones were, were right. So I've done, I've taken it a step further and done electronic comparisons as well. That's great. So cool. The whole reason of having you on the show is we wanted to talk a little bit about Innsmouth. You know, we just covered Innsmouth uh, and finished up last week. Now, you have some knowledge of the actual place that Innsmouth was kind of inspired by. Yes, some secret and forbidden knowledge. Please tell us about this. I love that. That's my favorite kind of knowledge. <laughs> exactly. As Lovecraft mentions repeatedly in his letters, Innsmouth is based on Newburyport, Massachusetts. Uh, and that's and we'll have to get into what that means exactly in a minute here because people have misinterpreted that. Uh, but my, my area of expertise in Lovecraftian studies besides making the Lovecraft archive has been geographical in nature, tracking down those points of interest that uh, were significant in Lovecraft's life or that inspired his stories. And there are many specific real-world locations that do feature in his stories um, or that inspired places in his stories. But there's also been a lot of misinterpretation in that regard, people finding real-world locations that aren't really, in, weren't really Lovecraft's inspirations. When Lovecraft talks about Newburyport in his letters he, uh, and, uh, and its inspiration on Innsmouth, he says things like Innsmouth reflects a sort of exaggeration of ancient Newburyport Mass. Um, and he says that term repeatedly, an exaggeration. He says another time, he says it's an echo of a Newburyport trip which he took. Um, or it's a considerably twisted version of Newburyport. Hmm. So Newburyport itself appears at the beginning of the story. Yes. But then Innsmouth itself is a an exaggerated echo or a, you know, a, t a considerably twisted version of the town. Right. And that's and difficult to, to determine exactly what he means by that. And the conclusion I've come to is that at the time Lovecraft visited Newburyport for the first time, the town was very run down. It had fallen on hard times. It was formerly a very prosperous uh, shipping port mm -hmm. right near the mouth of the Merrimack River. And uh, it had fallen on hard times, and a number of the buildings were boarded up. Uh, the town wasn't dying, per se, but it, it had fallen on hard economic times. And so when Lovecraft says that Innsmouth is a, a reflection of that or an you know, exaggeration of it, what he's really saying is that Innsmouth was also was a prosperous fishing town at one point, and it had fallen on hard times. But he took it a step further to the point where there was... Uh, inbred degeneracy going on and the, the commerce had literally fallen off altogether to the point where the town was, was abandoned for commercial reasons. Hmm. And so that, as far as I'm concerned, is the extent to which Innsmouth is based on Newburyport. You, I don't really believe you can point to a physical building or physical location in Newburyport and say, this is what inspired uh, Lovecraft to create this building in Innsmouth. And now, is Newburyport Port, uh, did they did they have hybrid fishmen there when Lovecraft visited? Let's see. In all the research I've done so far, I have yet to find it. But of course, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, good. So that's still a possibility. All right. That confirms it for me. We cannot rule it out. 
you had also we'd we'd gone back and forth, and you told me that you had also been you'd visited some of the sites of Whisper and Darkness and some of the uh, the wilds of Vermont as well, right? Yeah, actually, um, it, it's funny because in one sense, uh, just as Innsmouth doesn't isn't really based on physical Newburyport, the places that Lovecraft mentions in Whisper and Darkness were not based on physical locations to some degree either. Um, that's kind of ironic, and and uh, he even though the the action in The Whisper in Darkness takes place in Newfane and Townsend, Vermont. Lovecraft never made it to Newfane and Townsend. He talks about quaint, sightly Newfane as if he's seen the village, but the day he wanted to go up there, the buses weren't running, so he never made it up there. <laughs> so all the the area he was familiar with is actually uh, Brattleboro, West Brattleboro, and a little town called Guilford, Vermont, which is immediately adjacent to West Brattleboro. And that's where he stayed with Vrest Orton, uh, for a couple of weeks. And so that whole area is what really contributed to the Whisper in Darkness. I'm interested in what you think about how Lovecraft uses locations as characters. Because as you mentioned, Innsmouth isn't necessarily based directly on Newburyport, but it's sort of a perverted or or a very strange, surreal version of it. Well, it's interesting that you, you, you put it that way because he, as far as I'm concerned, he really does uh, use the New England character, the, the general New England atmosphere to build his stories. So he, you know, he describes uh, Arkham as being based on Salem and uh, Innsmouth based on Newburyport and Kingsport based on Marblehead and, of course, Dunwich based on Athol and Wilbraham. So he says these, he refers to these towns specifically. And there are instances where there are specific towns or specific buildings in those towns that you could say contributed to his inspiration. And yet, really, it's that overall um, New England atmosphere. Uh, there are books like, uh, in fact, the book that really inspired me to go down this route of, of investigating Lovecraftian geography was Philip Schreffler's H.P. Lovecraft Companion. And Schreffler makes a number of errors in his analyses, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of what buildings inspired Lovecraft. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of like half the, the buildings he points to are obvious inspirations because Lovecraft even mentions them by name. And the other half are pure speculation. He's, I think Schreffler's just wrong. And yet I found this, the book very inspirational, you know, 20-some-odd years ago. Right. And, and so while I, I also seek out these real-world places, um, and I have lists of them on the website, on, on the H.P. Lovecraft archive, of places you can visit, the key really is just absorbing that New England atmosphere and just exploring the countryside, exploring the quaint towns, and if you if you walk around a place like Marblehead, Massachusetts, and just wander the the, the streets and the alleys um, and the graveyards, you will get the same feeling Lovecraft had uh, in being in those places. The specific buildings are great to visit, and I recommend doing so. But the real key is just soaking up that atmosphere. So specifically, what what brought you down this road? Do you have other geographical interests that you pursue? Do you you pursue the inter intersection between literature and geography uh, as a subject, or I, uh, for some reason I've always been fascinated by geography and travel. You know, even as a kid, um, I remember when I was fairly young becoming interested in architecture as well. Um, I started my interest in architecture in antebellum Southern architecture, but uh, reading Lovecraft's letters has really given me an appreciation for. Uh, New England architecture of the the 17th and 18th centuries. So it's really you know a combination of all these things, the architecture and the geography that's really appealed to me. Um, and ironically, that knowledge of architecture, which you know, admittedly I'm still very much an amateur at it, uh, has 
help me locate some of these points of interest by identifying places Lovecraft refers to only by description in his letters. I've been able to locate them. Uh, and so that's, that's also been something that other people have, the, the area other people have made errors in is not identifying the right type of architecture and saying, well, this is the building Lovecraft had in mind, even though it's described completely differently. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, I can think of three examples just off the top of my head. Um, one of the places that people seem to think Innsmouth was inspired by was Gloucester, Massachusetts. And uh, Will Murray wrote an article in a Crypt of Cthulhu many years back called I Found Innsmouth. And he mentions two places of interest in Gloucester that he believes inspired places in the, the shadow of Rinsmith, and one of them is the Legion Memorial Building in Gloucester, which is a uh, essentially a Masonic hall that uh, you know, was supposedly inspiring the esoteric order of Dagon Hall. But the thing is right. that, that pillared halls are very common in New England, and pointing to any one of them seems kind of silly. Now, at the same time, Lovecraft did visit Gloucester, was familiar with it, and in fact, one of the buildings he was familiar with in Gloucester was the Sergeant Murray Gilman Hugh House. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the reason that that house has such a long name is it's just named after four previous inhabitants of the building. But clearly one of them is the Gilman name. Uh-huh. Well, the house, though, is really just a simple two-story tall, two-and-a-half-story gambrel-roofed house. And if you look at the Lovecraft's notes for, for The Shadow of Rinsmith, his discarded draft for The Shadow of Rinsmith, he's got a sketch of the Gilman house, which on that paper he he writes its name as Gilham, not Gilman, Gilham House. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that, that building is drawn as a five-story tall hotel, not a house, not a two-and-a-half-story gamber-roofed house. Right. Uh, and there were hotels in Newburyport at the time that were four stories tall, like um, one of them was the Wolf Tavern, for example, that was four stories tall. And so I think this is just a, a building that was built as such, as a hotel, and there's nothing about the Gilman House in uh, Gloucester to suggest a five-story tall, you know, brick hotel building. There's sure. just I, I just don't see a connection. Uh, one of the, the comments that uh, Murray makes in his article is he talks about the the dormers that the the Gilman House in Gloucester has, and trying to compare it to the cupola that the Gilman House in Shadow of Rinsmith has. Well. Lovecraft knew the difference between a cupola and a dormer. A dormer is just a window on uh, a roof, a roof line, whereas a mm-hmm. cupola is uh, a place at the top of the building where you could look out through windows in every direction. So completely different architectural elements. So that's right. there's a couple of examples right there. I, I can think of one in uh, a classic one is in Philip Schreffler's the, the H.P. Lovecraft Companion, where uh, Schreffler describes a building in Marblehead called the Pirate's Hideout. As being as inspiring the the home of the terrible old man. Problem is, Lovecraft wrote the terrible old man before he visited Marblehead. Ah. So there's things like that that have gone on uh, where people have just mistaken one type of building to for another. Lovecraft sort of has this reputation of being a you know kind of an, an agoraphobe guy who just stayed at home and wrote and never talked to anybody and didn't have any friends and just corresponded. But obviously, he traveled a lot. Yeah. After the death of his mother, he traveled extensively up and down the eastern seaboard. He went as far north as Quebec and as far south as Key West and as far west as Cleveland. And so his travels were pretty extensive. In fact, uh, his description of Quebec is the longest uh, thing he wrote, period, fiction or otherwise. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, he was he was quite the traveler. He really enjoyed this. In fact, uh, one of his favorite things to do, uh, north of Providence, about eight miles, is a park 
called, formerly called Quinn Snicket Park, now called Lincoln Woods, named after Abraham Lincoln, and uh, renamed after Abraham Lincoln. And Lovecraft used to walk there to read letters from correspondents, to write back to them, and to uh, write stories. And that was an eight-mile trip one way. And so he would walk up there frequently. Uh, there was a um, ice cream parlor in Warren, Rhode Island, called Maxfield's Ice Cream where he used to walk, and that was about a 12-mile walk down the east side of Narragansett Bay. And he would go there you know, a couple times every summer with friends or sometimes ride in, in one of their vehicles. So he was certainly not averse to being out, outdoors and uh, exploring when his, when his pocketbook could afford it. Now, there's a rumor that's going on, and I want to know if there's any truth to this, that when he was in Key West, he was there at the same time as Hemingway that he actually met Hemingway. The, <laughs> this is, no, no. And the first time that he ever got drunk was with Hemingway and that they wrestled. <laughs> I want to know if there's any truth to this rumor that I have just started right now. Okay, you said that he was in Key West at the same time as Hemingway. That part may be true. Yes. <laughs> Beyond <Confirmed>. that. <laughs> that rumor's been confirmed right now. Okay, so yes. confirmed. Yep, by experts. If we were to discover that Arkham and... Dunwich and and Innsmouth are real places. Donovan, would you would you go? I wouldn't go to Dunwich. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Innsmouth, I probably wouldn't go to. Kingsport, I would consider as long as I got out before before nightfall. Okay, <laughs> it's probably same with same with Arkham. Arkham seems like the safest place. I would say Arkham seems like it would be the safest place to go to. Yeah, it's got a university for crying out loud. You know, there's got to yeah. be enough. It's got to be safe enough that a bunch of people go to school there. Exactly. I mean, when you think about it, what's the worst stuff that's happened in Arkham? Well, Wilbur Waitley died in the uh, uh, in the library there. Yeah, if you bring a dog, you're probably fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, you got the whole Asenath, Wait and Edward Derby thing going on there. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't sound like you're going to run into much on the street. No. So, uh, but the other towns, you might run into something that uh, you don't want to encounter. No, I would definitely never go to Innsmouth. Right. Never, (laughs) never. I I think I would drive through through Dunwich during the day. I'd do a little cruise through and that would be it. Never get out of the car. But I wouldn't even uh, I wouldn't even drive through Innsmouth. That just it terrifies me. In Kingsport, yeah, that'd be fine. Innsmouth, I would drive through during the day, but Dunwich, I wouldn't, uh, because the way it, Innsmouth is described, it sounds like you could go there through the day. The risk is you're going to get a flat tire, or something's going to go wrong with your car, and you're going to have uh, to stay in Gil- Gilman House overnight. That's the uh, risk. Uh, oh, oh. I want to do. Uh, you two would be the perfect Lovecrafting protagonist. You're so scared of everything. <laughs> <laughs> would you go, Pfeiffer? What? Oh, I, I'm leave me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any interesting discoveries when you've gone to these places? Things that you have found in your travels that you didn't know before? Oh yeah. In fact, because this has been my my area of uh, scholarship, so to speak, I've discovered loads of this stuff. In fact, lo- looking through Lovecraft's letters. Um, so far, I've identified about 1,200 points of interest that Lovecraft mentions in his letters Whoa. or fiction. And I've visited more than half of those. So that's been my goal for the last all, nearly 20 years now, is tracking all these places down. And I'm working on, on books. It'll, it'll probably be a two-volume book uh, wow. that uh, is going to chronicle all these. And like I said, it's, you know, I, th- I think it's really cool to visit these locations. But the key thing is don't just hit these locations and run on. You've got to mm-hmm. really absorb those places. Uh, those those towns. So, like I said, uh, about a little over a month ago, I was on another trip to New England. I plan on vi- I plan on moving to Providence when I'll do even more exploration. And I spent quite a bit of time in Newburyport at the public library there, much like the the narrator of the Shadow of Rinsmith. 
and uh, discovered a few interesting things. Uh, one of which is that when Lovecraft describes Market Square in Newburyport, uh, he's pretty much spot on. There is a lot of things there, and, and we've known this to some extent, uh, but uh, there's a few specific places of interest that I discovered for the first time. For example, um, Olmstead, the character in The Shadow of Rinsmith, he talks about inquiring at the shops, the lunchroom, the garages, and the fire station in Newburyport. Well, the lunchroom was probably the ideal lunch, which he mentions later in the story. There was a garage there in the 30s called Bradford's Garage that occupied several storefronts on Market Square. Fire station's still there. Uh, it was actually built in 1823 as a market house and ceased becoming a fire station in 1980. It's now the, the, mar- let's see, the Firehouse Center for the Performing Arts. But uh, also, he mentions in the story, the Hammond's Drug Store in front of which he waits for the bus... Uh, and the ideal lunch that's directly across the square from it. Well, I found the ideal lunch. It was previously located at 5 State Street, and it was there from 1920 to 1947. Um, and I actually went into the shop. It's now a, a shoe store. And I mentioned to the, the clerks working in there that it was formerly a diner, and one of the women there said, oh, that explains the bathrooms in the basement. And I asked to see them, but for insurance reasons, they wouldn't let me down there. But she described them as, quote-unquote, diner-like, whatever that meant exactly. So <laughs> there's that. And then directly across the street from State Street was uh, supposedly in the story Hammond's Drugstore. Uh, but actually the, the drugstore that was there was the Charles W. Perry Pharmacy. So there was a pharmacy located directly there, and buses did stop in front of it. Uh, in fact, the ideal lunch at one point was a ticket office for the B&M Transportation Company, which operated both, obviously, the buses, the trains and the and buses from that area. And they had a ticket office in the ideal lunch. Um, I've only found evidence that that ticket office was operating as early as 1932, um, and Lovecraft uh, wrote the story immediately before that. So it's, it's debatable whether the ticket office was there at the time. So those are a couple uh, of things I spotted on my on my last trip is the fact that ideal lunch really did exist um, before this we didn't know if it was fictional or not I've even found an advertisement for it which is pretty amusing to see there's there's also a, a couple other places of in Newburyport that I've known about for a while um, in the story the narrator visits the uh, Newburyport Historical Society no no organization of that name exists but there is the Historical Society of Old, Old Newburyport which performs the same function. And it's currently in the Cushing House Museum at 98 High Street. But at the time Lovecraft visited the town, it was in the Pettingill Fowler House, uh, which after the, the Historical Society moved, the Pettingill Fowler House became an, a, an odd fellow's home, a, a fraternal organization, and then was abandoned for quite a few years. And a few years ago, like you know, three, four years, it was uh, purchased and renovated. Now it's a gorgeous building on High Street. So that's actually the building that the narrator visits is the Pettingill Fowler House at 164 High Street. He also visits, as, as you may remember, the public library, which was the Nathaniel Tracy House. That's still there. And he stays overnight at the, the, the YMCA, which was there in which, in which Lovecraft did stay himself. And it was immediately next door to the public library. Back in the 80s, it burned down. Uh. And uh, it, the library built an extension onto the Nathaniel Tracy house on the side of the YMCA. And so now when you enter the, the public library, you have to enter through the new wing that was on the yeah. side of the YMCA. Now, I know that, that uh, before that fire happened, the village people actually stayed there at that YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a fact. Again, I 
a fact that I made up just this minute, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I don't think I can confirm that one even in the least. Okay. Although they have stayed at AYMC, so <laughs> it's hard to say whether they stayed at that one or not. So. And it was fun. Those are the facts of press. That's right. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> well, the other big one, as far as I'm yeah. concerned, was I found Joseph Kerwin's house. What? Sort of. Uh, <laughs> Whoa, man. You, if you read the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Lovecraft spells out exactly where Kerwin's house is. He says it's uh, opposite Mr. Appenitus Olney's Tavern off Ye Town Street, which is now North Main Street, first on ye north side of Olney's Court. And Olney's Court has long been assumed to be an extension of Olney Street in Providence. So um, the problem was everything west of North Main Street was dozed around the 30s to widen North Main Street at that point. Mm-hmm. And I found an old plat map from 1918 that shows a building at that location, which was 6 Olney Street. And I looked through old city directories and found out why Lovecraft picked this building. From 1924 to 1928, the building at 6 Olney Street was occupied by a Mrs. Delilah Townsend. And looking through letters, Lovecraft's letters, it, it reveals why he picked that building. Delilah Townsend was a black woman who did domestic chores for Lovecraft and his aunts. Oh. So it's a so it's a weird little Lovecraft in joke that he included her house, and you may recall that in the story there's a, a black couple that lives there. Yeah, he checks out the the building and takes out. You know, first of all, he starts by cleaning off the uh, the overmantel and finding Joseph Kerwin's portrait, and right. then he cuts out the portrait and finds Kerwin's books behind it. Right. So so that's why Lovecraft chose that building. The next trick I've got to find is that is finding out when the the house was built and maybe even a photograph of it. When they did these demolition projects, they would go through and take pretty extensive photographs of the buildings that they were going to demolish. So my guess is somewhere in the Providence City Archives is a photograph of this house. And um, I've looked through some of the photographs for similar projects, but uh, haven't found a collection for that particular project. Wow. So this is, we're revealing this here on the show, is that right? Yep, exactly. Woohoo! Right. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, we are, uh, we've run out of time with you. Uh, we've, we only had a, a limited amount, but uh, the stuff you shared with us is super exciting and really, really cool. And uh, hopefully in the future, we might be able to have you back sometime. That'd be fantastic. I'm Woo! available. Well, uh, once again, thanks so much for the resources on hplovecraft.com. I know that people who listen to the show go there all the time, and, and uh, I hope you don't mind if we continue linking out to it. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Great. HPPodcraft.com. Well, that's all we've got for this week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. I want to once again thank Robert M. Price and Donovan K. Lauks for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks to Mike Mann for helping us through some technical difficulties this week. We'll be back next time on time with Lovecraft collaboration called The Trap. And we're going out this week with a Fear Boys with Bugs song called The Ballad of Agent HP. Enjoy that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week.